worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. GX on Agriculture with Doug Falconer. Good afternoon and welcome to GX on Agriculture. Coming up on today's program, the Western Canadian Wheat Growers has reacted to the announcement that the federal government will undertake consultations aimed at providing a coordinated approach to improving the agriculture sector's environmental performance and sustainability. We'll hear from President Gunter Joachim. We'll also hear from APAS President Ian Boxall. You heard some of his interview yesterday from the APAS Annual General Meeting in Saskatoon on Friday. He will now uh, talk about the standard grain contract situation and where that might be going for Canadian farmers. As well, Grain Week 17 railway performance stayed consistent with previous weeks as winter operations and restrictions continue to dictate service levels. We'll hear from Milt Poirier with QGI Consulting. All of those stories and much more coming up on today's edition of GX on Agriculture. But first, it's time for the Agriculture Outlook with Precision Weather. And that's a presentation of Milligan Bio. Milligan Bio now offers bio meal for your livestock, giving your animals more protein, more energy, and more of what they need. It's also brought to you by Sean Perhitka, your Remax Blue Chip Realty Ag Specialist. Agriculture Outlook with Precision Weather. With Phil Spivak from Precision Weather. And Phil, we had a little bit of very light snow this morning, but it stopped for the time being anyway. Can we expect some more snow before the day's out? Yeah, it likely is going to pick back up. And in fact, some of the steadiest snow for us is going to come in uh, toward the end of the day. Questionable, you know, how you define the day, whether it is actually a nighttime snow or a daytime snow. I think the bulk of it, uh, the heaviest, will fall uh, after sunset. So we could call that uh, nighttime. Though this time of year, I hate to call those late afternoon hours nighttime. So that's where the gray area comes in. At the end of the day, by the time this all winds down and the steadiest of it will wind down, um, middle of the night, we'll pick up an average of four to eight centimeters and then a little bit of light snow lingering beyond that. But the core of it coming in during the night gets us into that total. The daytime, it's uh, the light stuff. It's sitting uh, well east of the uh, provincial line. The uh, steadier snow actually coming down pretty uh, pretty heavily around Winnipeg right now, but it's backing up slowly, and the whole area is going to continue to fill in. This storm system is deepening over the western Great Lakes, upper Midwest of the U.S. The storm primarily is a U.S. storm. The heaviest snowfall this afternoon set up from uh, central and western North Dakota back down across the Midwest and then down the Mississippi with some heavy rain showers and some severe weather down that way as well. But with the southern branch of that storm breaking eastward, that leaves the northern branch to start to back up a little bit. And that's why we're going to be getting some of that snow, the whole area just spreading out um, across the, well, a good portion of the continent, not just the country or the continent. 
The uh, snow will be, again, steady through the night, the heaviest of it through the evening. It'll continue a steady, light snow overnight. And temperatures, which are above normal, will around minus 6. Not much more movement today. We're pretty much there. Uh, dropping back off to minus 11 tonight. The wind is up, though, 15 to 30, and uh, even a bit stronger tomorrow. So the wind chill still uh, between minus 15 and minus 20. Minus 11 low tonight, though. The winds are at their weakest tonight. Wind chill still near minus 20. Tomorrow, some flurries linger. Not a lot of uh, accumulating snow tomorrow, maybe in the morning. A centimeter or so, but most of the day, just some nuisance-type flurries. The temperature around minus 9, likely before sunrise, and steady or slowly falling through the day. Mostly cloudy tomorrow night, minus 14. A bit of sun could poke through on Friday. We're going to be the uh, optimists here, call it partly sunny at times. I think that may be a stretch, but uh, a little sun, we can call it partly sunny. Minus 12 is the high on Friday. Cloudiness thickens back up. The next little uh, spoke of energy cuts at us on Saturday. This one is a more, we'll say, normal storm. It's coming in from the west, sliding uh, southeastward, but very slowly. So some flurries come in later Saturday, Saturday night, into Sunday, some light snow. This does look to be a, a pretty light one as far as accumulation goes, but likely persistent through the weekend, maybe even lingering into Monday before a more potent storm comes in toward the middle part of next week as temperatures get locked into the uh, cool readings. As we discussed uh, yesterday, I think it was back below normal for a good portion of the coming week. That's Phil Spivak from Precision Weather. Temperatures around the region this hour, the Paw, Swan River, and Roblin all reporting in at minus 6 degrees, Dauphin minus 4, Brandon minus 3, Show Lake Russell, minus 5. Regina and Hudson Bay are at minus 10 degrees. Saskatoon, minus 14. Broadview Mooseman, minus 7. Indian Head, minus 8. Winyard Wadena Kelvington, minus 11. The Yorkton Melville region has a cloudy sky, a north wind at 24 kilometers an hour. 90% is the relative humidity. The temperature is minus 7 degrees. With the wind chill, it feels more like minus 15 degrees. Yesterday, Yorkton reached a high of minus 4 degrees and dropped to a low of minus 8 degrees. There was no precipitation recorded in the 24-hour period ending at midnight last night. The normal high for this date is minus 11 degrees. The normal low is minus 21 degrees. The sun rose in Yorkton at 8.47 this morning, and it will set at 4.43 this afternoon. Extreme temperatures for Manitoba and Saskatchewan yesterday. The Manitoba hot spot was Emerson at plus 1 degree. The cold spot was Tadouli Lake at minus 14 degrees. The Saskatchewan hotspot yesterday was Estevan at minus 4 degrees. The cold spot was Maple Creek, which dropped down to minus 27 degrees. And that's a look at your agriculture weather. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will return in one minute's time. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. As you heard yesterday, the Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan annual general meeting wrapped up in Saskatoon on Friday. APAS President Ian Boxall says progress on getting grain companies to agree to standard grain contracts 
is a slow process. I wouldn't use the word positive. <laughs> there has been some discussion, that it, and, it, and really it hasn't. We haven't had great discussion with the elevators and, and the grain buyers on this. But, you know, there is precedent set in the agriculture industry on a standardized contract. If I go buy a tractor at New Holland or a tractor at John Deere, the contract, the sales contract's the same. So there has been a precedent set, and, and I don't think any producer ever wants a standardized contract so stringent that you can't negotiate on, on what you have to sell. But I do believe, you know, APAS believes there are some some aspects of a contract that could be standardized and laid out there and and you know we haven't we need to keep working on this that hasn't been as big issue this year because we had a good crop and everyone's fulfilled the contracts but let's get something in place so the next time we do have an issue the the system's ready for it and, and producers are protected he says marlena borsch of mercantile consulting venture in winnipeg suggests farmers should put a contract together and present it to the grain companies. You know, I think if, if a you know, group like APAS and some of the other commodity groups and commissions got together and put together a standardized contract, if we do the work for them, it makes it, and they only have to say yes or no, at least we, maybe it's easier than forcing them to do the work. So yeah, I do believe there is an opportunity that if you know we got together with the right people in the room and come up with a standardized contract that producers agreed with, and then we would present it to them, and I guess really the ball would be in their court to tell us why not, right? Boxall says the standard grain contract used in Australia could serve as a blueprint. Yeah, I think there's there's some countries where we could go and get some gather some information and look at what's out there and make sure that we get it that so it fits Saskatchewan producers because it is provincial legislation that covers contracts. So he believes grain contracts should be resolved by farmers and grain companies, and the federal government shouldn't be brought into it. Yeah, I think if we can get if we can get the the grain buyers to agree to a to a standardized contract, I I never want the government to have to get involved in our business if they don't have to. If we can work together and and do what's you know better the industry, and if if that would be the goal, it's just to work together with you know the elevator association and the grain buyers and producers and make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to a contract. Boxall adds there were a couple of changes on the APAS board of directors at their AGM last week. Yeah, you bet. Two directors uh, stepped down this year, Scott Owens up in District 6 and Devin Harlick, and I'd like to thank them for their work on the board. And I'm looking forward to working with our two new directors, Devin Walker from up in the Maidstone Country in District 6 and Kevin Gilbert from down in District 1 in the southwest part of the province. And, and he'll bring some, you know, with that area still under the drought, he will, you know, I'm, I'm interested to hear his perspective on how we, what we can do down there. He adds that one vice president has stepped down as well. Yeah, so Scott Owens, who stepped down, was the vice president, and Bev Pirio from Radville was elected vice president. So I look forward to Bev brings a, a great perspective to the organization, and I look forward to working with her. Ian Boxall is the president of the Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan. It's time now for the Ag Review portion of our program, and that's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. GX94. Agri-Review. Eastern Canadian farmers who paid millions of dollars more for fertilizer in 2022 due to sanctions on imports from Russia will not be getting a refund as the Canadian government is forwarding $115 million in expected tariff revenues to repair the power grid in Ukraine. 
Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christia Freeland announced the commitment at a Ukrainian Solidarity Conference in Paris yesterday. Imports into Canada from Russia and Belarus have been subject to 35% tariffs since March 2nd, 2022, with nitrogen fertilizer destined for fields in eastern Canada at or near the top of the list of imported goods. Farm groups, including the Grain Farmers of Ontario, the Atlantic Grains Council, and the Quebec Grain Farmers, have been calling on the government to refund tariff fees directly to farmers. Prices for green and yellow peas in Western Canada have remained quite steady over the last week, largely due to the lack of demand. That's according to Darwin Hamilton of Calshi Commodities in Winnipeg. He says North American peas are more expensive than the peas coming out of Eastern Europe, and a lot of that product is going to China. Hamilton says exports out of Canada to China are pretty much a trickle of what they would normally be at this time of year, which only compounded the current situation. That included East European peas being significantly cheaper than those available from Canada. Agricultural commodity merchant Louis Dreyfus Company has created a food and feed solutions business line as part of efforts to diversify its activities in step with consumer trends. The new unit will focus on developing LDC's presence in the lecithin, glycerine and specialty feed protein areas, adding it was well placed to scale up in the nature-based ingredients market, including via targeted acquisitions. The group will draw on its existing portfolio in the processing of oil seeds, oils and fats. The push into specialized ingredients by international merchants was encouraged by shrinking margins in the past decade for selling and shipping crops, although profits have rebounded as the COVID-19 pandemic and the war in Ukraine have fueled market volatility. A NASA-led international satellite mission is set for blast-off from a Southern California city early on Thursday on a major Earth science project to conduct a comprehensive survey of the world's oceans, lakes and rivers for the first time. Dubbed SWAT, short for Surface Water and Ocean Topography, the advanced radar satellite is designed to give scientists an unprecedented view of the life-giving fluid covering 70% of the planet, shedding new light on the mechanics and consequences of climate change. If all goes as planned, the SUV-sized satellite will produce research data within several months. Nearly 20 years in development, SWAT incorporates advanced microwave radar technology that scientists say will collect height surface measurements of oceans, lakes, reservoirs and rivers in high-definition detail over 90% of the globe. The data, compiled from radar sweeps of the planet at least twice every 21 days, will enhance ocean circulation models, bolster weather and climate forecasts, and aid in managing scarce fresh water supplies in drought-stricken regions, according to researchers. French company Insect says it has signed deals to build insect ingredient production sites in the United States and in Mexico as the firm kicks off what it says will be the world's largest insect farm. 
Insect breeds mealworms that produce proteins for aquaculture, livestock, pet food, fertilizers, and human nutrition. The company signed the U.S. agreement with flour milling company Ardent Mills to build a factory next to one of its U.S. Midwest sites, yet to be determined by the end of 2023. The two new sites will cost at least $144.2 million Canadian each, and output should eventually rise to about 200,000 metric tons of insect-based ingredients per year. Ardent Mills, a joint venture between Conagra Foods, Cargill and CHS Incorporated would supply milling byproducts to feed the insects. In Mexico, Insect teamed up with food and general services provider Corporativo Cosmos. The factory would be located near Mexico City and export to the U.S. market. And that's the AgriView portion of our program. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will return in 60 seconds time. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. I'm Doug Falconer. It's cloudy and minus 7 degrees in the Yorkton-Melville region. I'll have your complete weather details coming up at 1 o'clock. The Western Canadian Wheat Growers has reacted to the announcement that the federal government will undertake consultations aimed at providing a coordinated approach to improving the agriculture sector's environmental performance and sustainability. President Gunter Joachim has his concerns about it. Well, for one, uh, nobody has been able to define the term sustainability. Uh, I know how I define it on my farm. I mean, uh, uh, my dad was farming. Uh, We moved to Canada in 1980, bought a small farm. Uh, I've grown that farm since I started farming here. Our daughter came back to the farm from an industry job and uh, has been farming with us for the last four years. Uh, And uh, she loves it and she's excited about the future. And that to me is sustainability. When a farm is, is, uh, continues going forward for decades. And I think government regulation is not the way to keep things sustainable. It actually adds cost, right? So whether it's the carbon tax, whether it's a fertilizer emission reduction based on flawed numbers, um, that that type of stuff is not sustainable to me. He says the wheat growers will get involved in the consultations nonetheless. Well, the wheat growers' plans is we, we will definitely make submissions, and I think we can make submissions until the end of March. Uh, we are also at the table, so to speak, uh, through Grain Growers of Canada, which is at the table itself. Uh, so, yes, we won't be sitting by idly. We will definitely make submissions. And um, um, I, I just hope that the industry and the few farmers at the table will be listened to. Because there's also uh, NGOs and special interest groups at this table, which, which is kind of baffling because uh, it... How how is it that they have such huge input? What happens at the farm gate? 
that that's what's baffling and, and really troubling. Yoakum is not happy that the federal carbon tax is going up again on January 1st. Yes, it is. Uh, it will go up by another 30% from $50 a ton to $65 a ton. And it, it just goes to show that the government is going through with being not truthful. When, when they first brought out the carbon tax, they said it wouldn't go past $50. And now we are uh, assured that it will go to $170 a ton. And at $50 a ton, that costs my farm anywhere from 12 to $15 per acre which is a huge hit to my sustainability. By the time it gets to $170 a ton, if my farm stays at that 3,000 acre level, this, this will be close to $150,000 hit on my farm. And trust me, that will make me very, very unsustainable. Not only that, it, that carbon tax does add incrementally to food inflation. Now, food inflation is, uh, you know, is caused by many factors. And we don't need a government to add to it through a carbon tax or other regulations that they are trying to impose at farmers and onto farmers. He's also skeptical that the 30% reduction in fertilizer emissions by 2030, touted by Ottawa, will remain voluntary. Absolutely. It is it is very suspect. Again, back to the carbon tax, they said 50 and then changed your mind, put it to 170. The ag minister in her office has said, no, no, all this reduction, all these regulations coming down, they, their goals and the goals are voluntary. However, talking to crop insurance and... Uh, other government programs that are out there. The government has also said that climate change goals will be directly related to insurance, whether it's crop insurance or other cap programs available to farmers. So in other words, unless you do as the government suggests, you will not be eligible or uh, the price for you to be able to insure your crops, your your crops and fields will go up substantially. And so, to me, where is that voluntary? That is not voluntary at all. So, is the minister lying? I I, I know I could get in trouble for saying the minister is lying. I'm just questioning. I I would like an explanation. It uh, it's really troubling when when you hear the minister say one thing and then actions speak speak a different tone. Yoakum says the wheat growers will participate in the consultations, knowing almost anything could come out of them. Absolutely, and we will uh, make our submissions. Uh, the submissions can be made until March thirty first. Uh, we're also at the table through Green Growers of Canada. We're a member of Green Growers of Canada. Uh, you can be rest assured that wheat growers will not sit idly by. And and I encourage our members to let their voices be heard. Uh, give us a call, email us with any suggestions that you have, 
and we will be sure to uh, pass that on. And he offered these final thoughts. It is a little worrisome, a little bit troublesome. You know, in the past, farmers would really worry about the weather going into the next year. You know, will it be too dry, too wet, too cold and whatnot. And now, unfortunately, that has changed to, you know, the weather, it is what it is. We can usually manage our way out of difficult situations. Government policy, on the other hand, oh boy, that that has become a real problem at the farm and the farm gate. And this is something that we have very little control over. The government makes it look like we have input, but then they turn around and say, well, thank you for your input, uh, but uh, this is how we're going to proceed. Gunter Joachim is the president of the Western Canadian Wheat Growers Association. It's time now for the livestock market conditions and their presentation of the Yorkton Crossing Retirement Village. Livestock Market Conditions. U.S. live cattle futures for February are trading at 155.70 this hour. That's down 65. April live cattle trading at 159.57, down 47. January feeder cattle trading at 183.50, down 72. March feeder cattle trading at 185.42, down 30. February lean hogs trading at 83.40, down 117. April lean hogs trading at 90.65, down 70. And that's the livestock market conditions. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will be back right after this. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Grain Week 17 rail performance stayed consistent with previous weeks as winter operations and restrictions continue to dictate service levels. Milt Poirier is with QGI Consulting and he monitors the railway's grain movement performance on behalf of the Ag Transport Coalition a consortium of grain companies and producer organizations. He explains what he observed over the past week. Week 17 looks an awful lot like week 16. And I guess I would say that uh, there's two parts to that. On the CN side of things, that's pretty good. On the CP side of things, not so good. So just a quick recap, you know, CN came in at 89% order fulfillment, which was a a notch or two above the 87% we saw in week 16, and really is pretty consistent with few exceptions uh, with the performance that we've seen pretty much for the last three months. You know, if you go back to week seven, CN has been averaging 87% a week order fulfillment. They haven't, you know, fallen below or above that 80 to 90 percent range on a week-to-week basis for the most part so you know steady is a is a fair description and really when you look inside the numbers that consistency seems to prevail for the most part Uh, they're pretty steady on a corridor basis again in week 17 where they delivered you know 81 percent or more of all cars ordered for all corridors and we'll talk about the provinces but the story is much the same there and when you look down at the shipper level they've been pretty consistent as well they do continue to ration orders at some level pretty much every week 
uh, nine out of the last 10, actually, a little bit more in week 17, but lower than we had been seeing in recent weeks. So, you know, in our prior conversations, we've kind of characterized this as their demand management strategy, if you will. And that seems to be ongoing. You know, if we look back over time, CN, when they first started using this rationing approach, kind of used it as what I call an emergency break strategy, which was to try and stem, you know, high waves of demand that they would get in some weeks during uh, the peak shipping season. But now I think what we're seeing, and we've talked about this, is that they've turned it into, you know, what I would call a strategic lever, uh, where they are actively using rationing uh, at some level consistently to, I think, match the demand that they're prepared to accept on a week-to-week basis against the capacity that they think they have available. So they're really looking to, you know, not stretch themselves and not end up in the situation CP has ended up in. And the tool that they've discovered that they can use to do that with is, is rationing. On the CP side, you know, unfortunately, not much changed from week 16. If you recall, week 16 was a particularly bad week. It was the worst week we had seen in, in pretty much a month. It came in at 71%. So they kind of, you know, ticked up a point in, in week 17 and, and got to 72% order fulfillment. Unfortunately, though, their their performance, you know, when we look inside the numbers is, is consistent but it's consistently poor, whether that's a corridor level or, you know, at a shipper level or at a provincial level, it's very uneven. In week 17, for instance, they only supplied uh, 76% or less in all corridors. I think Thunder Bay and Vancouver, which are their two biggest, they came in at 75%. Uh, When we look at shippers, you know, half the shippers did very well, uh, got almost the full complement of cars that they ordered, 97%. But the other half, you know, not so well. They were somewhere between 30 and 60%. So very uneven performance. And lastly, the, you know, the big issue that's been dogging CP for pretty much a couple of months now is the order backlog. And it's still with them. Week 16 was one of the worst weeks we had seen quite a while. They had just about 1,900 outstanding orders coming out of week 16 into week 17. So they improved a little bit on that, but they're still going into week 18 with uh, roughly 1,600 outstanding orders. So, you know, that backlog continues to dog them and it continues to take away capacity from meeting current week demand. So until they figure out a way to shake that, you know, I kind of think we're going to keep seeing a similar story here from week to week. That's Milt Poirier with QGI Consulting. We'll have more comments with Poirier coming up on the program here shortly, but first it's time for the Commodities Update, and that's a presentation of Hackman Feeds. Commodities Update. Canola futures are trading up in the nearby months this hour. January canola trading at $877 per metric ton. That's up 70 cents. March canola trading at 862.10, up $3.60. March Minneapolis wheat trading at 9.16 and a half, down six and a quarter cents. March Kansas City wheat trading at 8.49 and three quarters, down 15 and a half cents. March Chicago wheat trading at 7.49 and a quarter, 
down one and a half cents. March corn trading at 650 and three quarters, down two and three quarters of a cent. January soybeans trading at 1484 and three quarters. That's up five cents. March oats trading at 343 and three quarters, up three cents. And that's the commodities update. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will be back right after this. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. I'm Doug Falconer. Once again, we're joined by Milt Poirier with QGI Consulting. He monitors the railway's grain movement performance on behalf of the Ag Transport Coalition. He says CP's spotting levels are still pretty low compared to earlier in the year. They are, which is, you know, kind of interesting when you think about it. Um, You know, we saw, if you go back to, I think, weeks 13, 14, 15, when we saw some of the better order fulfillment performance from CP, they were in the low to mid 80s for three straight weeks because demand was lower. That was, you know, the principal driver and as we've talked about before, that demand was lower because shippers were, you know, managing their pipelines given the service levels they were seeing and they were pushing orders out and out and out into future weeks, which had the effect of lowering demand in those weeks. And CP did better on an order fulfillment basis. But the problem is they, they still weren't spotting enough cars to A, get rid of the backlog, which they carried all the way through that time period. You know, they were still averaging 700, 800 outstanding orders a week, which has just grown in the last two weeks. And they were spotting far fewer cars than, you know, what they said they would in their grain plan. You know, they committed to spot 6,000 plus cars a week, railway supplied cars. And, you know, they've spotted less than 5,000 cars uh, twice in the last four weeks and barely 6,000 cars one of those weeks. So, you know, it's a bit of a contradiction when you think about the fact that they've had opportunity to catch up. Shippers, for want of a better term, have cooperated to create that opportunity. The CP is not upping its game, if you will, to spot the number of cars a, that they need, and B, that they committed to, to get over that hump. So, interesting to see what happens in the next couple of weeks, I think. Poirier says CN's strategic car rationing hasn't had a consistent pattern week to week. Uh, I can't say that I've seen anything that would necessarily resemble a pattern as to, you know, the origins or the origin regions uh, where they're doing rationing. On a corridor basis, it's it's fairly consistent, and it's not surprising, really, when you look at, at the traffic flows. The majority of the rationing has been in the Vancouver corridor, which is not a surprise. It's the biggest corridor for CN. They've rationed very little to Prince Rupert, which is a change from prior years. Truth be known, apart from a bunch of car bunching we've seen in the last few weeks, they've actually managed the demand into Prince Rupert fairly well. And they've done some rationing to Thunder Bay. So, you know, no consistent pattern respect to origin regions where the rationing is happening, but very consistent with the fact that most of it has been in the Vancouver corridor. Poirier says nothing caught his eye on a provincial basis this week. Not particularly. You know, CN is doing at the provincial level pretty much what they're doing at the system level. Week 17 was not uh, much different in that regard. You know, they were 95% in Alberta, 99% Manitoba, 81% Saskatchewan. 
So they're hitting that, you know, 80 to 90, and they were actually better than that in Alberta and Manitoba this past week, but steady and have been for quite a while. CP is also consistent with what they're doing at the uh, system level, unfortunately. It's consistently not good. Uh, I mean, the one exception there is Alberta. I'd say Alberta has seen by far the most consistent and best service from CP. If you go all the way back to, you know, week nine, which is kind of the end of September, first week of October. Manitoba and Saskatchewan have not been so fortunate. Very rocky, if you will, and uneven performance week to week in both of those provinces from CP going back over the last couple of months. And week 17, you know, just kind of pushed that same storyline down the road. Alberta came in at 86%. Manitoba came in at a dismal 47%. And Saskatchewan at 76%. So, you know, Alberta shippers are doing okay, pretty much. And uh, the other two provinces, not so well. Poirier outlines how demand has been from shippers on the railways. Yeah, demand hasn't changed a lot from, you know, the picture that we've been talking for about for a couple of weeks. Uh, CP's demand is, you know, has been and continues to be consistently higher than CN. We see lots of week-to-week volatility in CP's demand, but a big driver of that is what shippers are doing. Their dedicated train scheduling, which represents 85% of CP's business, so that creates a lot of variability. And CN, you know, as we just talked about a couple of minutes ago, continues to manage its demand through, you know, some level of week-to-week rationing. So on that front, the story remains pretty much as it has been. Poirier expects winter to be difficult for CP Rail since they have so many orders on the books. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, we all know and history has told us uh, repeatedly that uh, the system has generally slows down in the winter months, particularly when the temperature gets cold. I expect that we're going to start to hear the railway, you know, winter is here, extreme cold story to rationalize or justify service levels here in the coming weeks. As you say, uh, a bit of a rough patch here on the prairies over the last week or so. Uh, And this is a big issue for CP, as you say, uh, because of the backlog. And we know their fleet uh, seems to be fully deployed. So there's no opportunity to improve capacity to manage that backlog unless they can turn those cars faster. And unfortunately, the cold weather and winter generally uh, is going to work against that kind of strategy because you tend to turn cars more slowly when it's cold uh, and capacity tends to go down. So, you know, they're to use a technical term, they're in a bit of a pickle. Milt Poirier is with QGI Consulting and he monitors the railway's grain movement performance on behalf of the Ag Transport Coalition. His comments come from the Grain by Train podcast, produced by Pulse Canada, a member of the Ag Transport Coalition. It's now 1 o'clock. That means it's time to check the GX94 precision weather forecast for the Quill Lakes, Hudson Bay, Swan River, Broadview, Mooseman, Indian Head, and Yorkton, Melville, Roblin, Russell regions today. Periods of snow with 2 to 4 centimeters possible. Winds north-northwest at 15 to 30 and a high of minus 6. For tonight, another 2 to 4 centimeters of snow. Winds north-northwest at 15 to 25 and a low of minus 11. For tomorrow, a 60% chance of early flurries, then cloudy. Winds north-northwest at 20 to 35 
and a high of minus 9. For Friday, partly sunny at times, winds north-northwest at 15 to 25, and a high of minus 12. For Saturday, cloudy, a high of minus 14, and Sunday, a 40% chance of flurries, a high of minus 18. In the Paw, Swan River, and Roblin, it's minus 6 degrees. Dauphin is at minus 4, Brandon minus 3, Show Lake Russell minus 5. Regina and Hudson Bay are at minus 10, Saskatoon minus 14, Broadview Mooseman minus 7, Indian Head minus 8, Winyard Wadena Kelvington minus 11. The Yorkton Melville region has a cloudy sky, a north wind at 24 kilometers an hour. 90% is the relative humidity. The temperature is minus 7 degrees. With the wind chill, it feels more like minus 15 degrees. That's your agriculture weather, and that'll do it for GX on Agriculture for today. Be sure to tune in again tomorrow at 12.15 for another edition of the program. It's time now for the news and sports headlines. CJGX Yorkton, a Harvard Media radio station serving Saskatchewan and Manitoba. We are GX 94.